Mac Power Users, Episode 604, Workflows with Jay Miller. Hello, everyone. This is David Sparks today on the Mac Power Users. Stephen Hackett can't be here today. He's unavailable, but that's okay. We have a guest today. Welcome to the show, Jay Miller. So happy to be here. This is, uh, this is podcasting dreams come true. <laughs> well, Jay, uh, I've actually interviewed you a couple times on my other shows, and uh, I just thought the Mac Power Users audience needed to hear from you. Uh, just to do a little bit of an introduction, uh, Jay is wears many hats. He's a developer advocate by trade. That's how he pays for his shoes. So as a result, he gives a lot of conference talks, YouTube videos, and does a lot of work with communication. And as a result, he's got some really great ideas on how to use his Mac for that stuff. Uh, he also knows his way around the terminal and automation. And, and he's a podcaster new to the Relay Network. Uh, with uh, our friend Kathy Campbell. They've got a great new show called Conduit, which is on Relay. Just go to relay.fm slash conduit. So, uh, Jay, number one, I'm super happy to have you in the Relay family. And number two, really glad to have you on the show. Yeah, I've I've always dreamed of owning a Mac as a kid. And then once I was old enough to get my own Apple products, naturally, I, I just kind of moved that way. And I think I've been doing that for the last decade and a half now. So not only do I feel older than I probably should, but uh, hopefully I've learned something that I can share with uh, with the community. Yeah, I know. Sometimes people ask me, like, how come you didn't get the original Mac? And the reason was I was in high school and it cost $3,000. And that was like, that was like, I don't know, $7,000 with today's money. <laughs> I don't know. It was a lot of money. Um, I had a, a used Apple II, and then it took me several years to get into a Mac because they were expensive. But uh, I get it, wanting to to own one of these computers and then finally getting into the, the ecosystem. Absolutely. There were so many compacts and e-machines, and uh, I think the first computer I ever got to work on was a Gateway 2000. So Wow, um, that's, Gateway. That's back when processors were using megahertz still. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, it is fun to kind of think back how far the industry has advanced it during our lifetimes. And that really applies to anybody listening to this show. Cause I feel like things have just accelerated so fast. You always wonder, you know, when will it get to the point like the star Trek moment where you just have a pile of iPads on your desk with reports on them and nobody says, but you don't have the iPad with the latest processor in it, you know, or I, I feel like maybe we get to that point at some point, but I'm not sure if the rocket ship slows down during our lifetimes. Yeah. I, I don't know if we'll ever, I don't know if iPads will replace uh loose leaf paper anytime soon, but yeah. uh, I know my desk will be happy for it when it does. <laughs> I, it would always crack me up about, you know, how some ways that idea, I think they called it the pad. I think if the, with two D's, you know, because Star Trek. But um, that was very, you know, it was a lot of foresight. I know they also had a, a tablet computer in uh, Space Odyssey. Uh, but the um, But the thing that always cracked me up in hindsight about Star Trek is Picard would have like, 10 of them on his desk that go in his office and it'd be like, he'd have all these reports he needed to read, but apparently the technology hadn't got to a point where you could put 10 reports on one pad. You had to have a separate pad for each one. And that kind of cracks me up. But the, uh, let's talk about some modern hardware. Jay, what, what is, uh, what are you driving these days? 
Yeah. So I, at first I thought it was so outdated and then I actually took inventory of stuff and I was like, well, you know, I'm not doing too bad, but, uh, my, all of my devices are Intel. Uh, I am dreaming of a day where M1 X or M2 or whatever they decide to call it, uh, will enter my life and it'll probably do in a, a big swing. So, uh, I'll be looking forward to that. But in the meantime, uh, my main machine that I use is a, a 2019 16-inch MacBook Pro. Um, it is one of the higher-end ones. It's got the extended RAM. It's got the AMD graphics card in it, which I use because I do a lot of video editing. Um, as you mentioned, kind of rolls of the job there. Uh, the other devices that I use are a uh, 2018 Mac Mini that I use as kind of a server. Uh, it isn't necessarily the strongest one, but luckily for me, it doesn't need to be. Uh, it it often sits headless. You know, I, I remote into it and it's running a lot of the smaller things that I'm doing in my, my days, but on the, that's it for the Mac side on well, the, well, I, the, well, wait, wait oh, there, on the, on the Mac though. So you got the, one of the last out the door Intel MacBooks. One of the the problems that I have is I tend to always get devices right when something new is about to come out. But this time, I actually didn't have much of a choice. Uh, This was the device that um, the company that I work for uh, was issuing. Um, If I would have started maybe two months later, I would have gotten probably one of the the early like MacBook Pros, the M1 MacBook Pros. But uh, unfortunately, the timing just didn't work out. Well, and, and it's easy to like, you know, get crushed over this. And Steven and I are always talking about how much we love this Apple Silicon and what a revolutionary change it is. But you still have, you know, a fairly recent MacBook Pro that's fully loaded. I mean, you have a lot more RAM than I do. <laughs> the, uh, and uh, it's a good computer. I mean, it's going to last a long time. Not everybody has to just like immediately throw all their Intel equipment overboard and buy, buy the Apple Silicon stuff. Yeah, I, I think the only question that I, I feel like I'm missing out on, the only perk I'm missing on is uh, some of the, the Apple Silicon integrations when it comes to things like Logic and Final Cut. Um, I tend to spend a lot of time in those those applications, and I, I tend to also have to run denoising to, to get that jet engine that also lives in my office, apparently, out of my recordings. Yeah. So it's, you know, if... If an M1 device keeps, you know, the fans from spinning up as much, uh, then I'm all I'm all on board because that just saves me a bunch of time and energy and post. Agreed. Agreed. Well, I mean, they are amazing, but you can still you can still love your uh, your 2019 MacBook Pro. I'll tell you, you said you got the 16 inch. Are you a big laptop guy by nature or is it just the one that gave you from work? If I could because I, because, you know, in a world where traveling is a thing again, I would be constantly traveling. Um, I do tend to want to go for the larger devices because, you know, the screen situation isn't always guaranteed. And we'll talk about a little bit later how I have, I use kind of my iPad as a second monitor in some cases and uh, other things like that. But I tend to usually operate off of one screen unless I'm presenting. Um, for me, in my office, that's my 25 inch or I think it's 25 inch, whatever size they are, the 5k LG displays. Um, but 
you know, I, I tend to want to go for the larger screen just because if I'm in a hotel room and, you know, I'm there for two or three days, I, I want to have a, a large enough screen without having to connect to a TV or, or anything like that. Yeah, the, the rumor is, as we sit here, that the when the M1X, the, you know, the MacBook Pro version of the Apple Silicon releases, that it is going to be the same processor whether you get the 14 or the 16-inch. And that's the first time. I mean, usually the 16-inch has a little beefier processor and a little more storage. It's just usually a general upgrade in addition to the screen. So if that's the case, when it releases... The question will be purely which size screen do you want? And I'm really curious to see how that plays out for a lot of folks. Yeah, I, I definitely think I would probably stick with the largest screens possible, um, except for the iPad. The iPad, I you know, the too big of a screen that I just want to lay it flat on the table and use it as like a, I guess, a table tablet or something. <laughs> I've never heard that saying before, and I like that. <laughs> so you which uh, iPad do you use? So I have the the second generation um, 11 inch iPad Pro. Uh, when I say it's the second generation, it's the one that has the notch uh, with Face ID, and you know it, it looks like a giant iPhone. Yeah, the flat. It's the first of the flat, the flat um, edged iPad. Exactly. Tw- I think it's the 2019 or 2018. Yeah, that's the yeah. Fir- that's a nice iPad. I mean, there's really not a reason to upgrade it. That's the one I'm using. I- I mean, I think that is the problem that Apple has had with the iPad line. And you know, iPad by no means is a is a failure of a product. It's it's almost too good of a product. It's it's not good enough that you want to buy it every year like you would an iPhone. But at the same time, like you can, I, like I said, you can run the same iPad for four or five years. And honestly, when I do get a new iPad, if and when that happens, this will go down to to my daughter, and you know, it'll become her iPad and we'll we'll keep recycling them through until they no longer have updates yeah i know we've got the same same system in our house uh i think also just they're so well made in the sense that i i'm just not aware of many people having like a mechanical problem or you know of something going wrong with an ipad usually they just kind of run until they're obsolete you know they're so old that the operating system can't run on it anymore but uh if you think of like PCs of years past, they would never last long enough to get get that old. You know, you never had a problem in the old days with a PC being obsolete because the software wouldn't run because the thing would be long dead before you ever got to that point. The iPad, I'm not sure. And also, I think that's also a, a, a failure of, of applications and software Apple needs to push the envelope. I mean, if none of the software really pushes the device hard, there's not that much, um, inspir- not that much motivation to go buy a new one because the software you have is already running fine on the old hardware. What do you use it for? Um, well, I mean, for me, my iPad is mostly just kind of a, a lounge around the house device, unless I'm giving presentations or I'm in a, a zoom call where I have to, to do a lot of, of talking and looking. And in that case, I actually use um, my iPad as my screen for a teleprompter that I have. All right. Well, we're going to talk about that later because I want, we're going to talk about video presentation. <laughs> I want to get into this teleprompter because I, I think that a lot of people think teleprompters are for fancy newscasters and presidents. And in fact, everybody could use a teleprompter. So we're going to get to that. Um, what about your iPhone? 
so I have the iPhone 12 mini. Um, I like the mini. It's I've, I'm not I don't really pick a side in the the mini must go or the mini must stay, you know, war. But at the same time, I I used to have larger phones. I was like, ah, you know, larger phone, just another thing to carry. Smaller phones kind of nice, especially right now where, you know, we're spending a lot more time at home than than anywhere. Um, that said, uh, I, I made the mistake of running the uh, the beta on my 12 mini, which uh, has started to show its its battery woes. But um, even then, I think that, you know, at the end of the day, I might go back to a larger phone in the future just for battery life. but. You know, it's not not too big of a deal if I'm not running betas, I guess. Yeah. So for listeners who are not crazy, like me and Jay, uh, running betas can be fun. But one thing you're always guaranteed, whether it's a good beta year or a bad beta year, but you are always guaranteed to get like 60% of your battery life that you were getting before you installed the beta. And that's because Apple's doing a lot of testing and reporting and, you know, it's a beta. So they're they're not worried about maximizing battery life they just want to make sure all the all the pipes are connected in the beta and then like right before they release it suddenly your battery gets remarkably better like it's i think that's like the last thing they do is like reconnect all the battery saving stuff and an iphone mini is got a small battery in it to begin with so uh, yeah that you should have saw that one coming jay that that said the uh the introduction of magsafe to the iphone line has been pretty helpful we have a couple of magsafe chargers so when i'm at my desk i just set it on the on the charger i have a little you know cheap stand i got off of amazon that yeah i just set it in so i can look at it and it's it's always it's almost always charging um and then when i'm you know here when i'm in my room I actually have, uh, you, you know, those little stands that they use at Apple stores. Like I have one of those and I just set it down on my uh, my nightstand and it just sits there and charges away. Uh, so there isn't a lot of time where it's not yeah, either close to a charger or being charged. But at the same time, when you go on those uh, those those day trips or you're you're out and about and you're not in, you're not in your car charging, you're like, you're starting to feel the pain of like, oh, now my phone's at like 30%. Oh, now it's at 20%. Oh, okay, we got to go soon. Yeah, like suddenly a world where a lot of us are suddenly working at home all day, um, a, a bad iPad, ba- or not a bad, but a smaller iPad battery doesn't feel as painful because we are all charging them all day as we move around our homes. It will be interesting to see what it's like when they get out. But but I don't think we've talked to anybody on the show about the iPhone mini because it is a very small iPhone in comparison to today's standards. I forget, isn't it about the size of an iPhone 5S? Yeah, that's that's kind of the feeling that I had. And I love my iPhone 5S when I had that. Uh, I think that was actually one of the last phones that I had that wasn't a plus-sized phone. And of course, you know, one of the things that a lot of people remember was the 5s was the last of that model you know that kind of that design that rectangular yeah. like edge design and uh they've kind of gone back to it now uh so you know during the iphone 6 7 you know in that era it seems like i preferred with with the squared edges the smaller phone but then with the rounded edges it was a larger phone for me 
Um, yeah. Not sure. Not sure if there's a, a pattern in there. Uh, we'll have to see what app, what Apple's next phones look like before we come to uh, any other decision on that. Yeah. I, I, I think of that as the bar of soap era, like the, the phones all felt like a bar of soap. I'm so glad I like the new design and um, like the rumors are already starting to talk about, well, what's the next design? I'm like, no, 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 just leave it like this for a while. I like this. Design. <laughs> but uh, the mini is really an interesting phone. And uh, we, we don't know whether or not we'll see another one next year. And uh, the people who I have talked to both offline and, and on the show that have minis really love them. Um, but you, you told me before we started recording today that you think you may not upgrade to a new mini this year. Yeah. If, if they bring the mini, I mostly the battery, like I said, I think the battery is kind of the bigger deal. I'm hoping again with my job, we'll be traveling again at some point in the near future. So, uh, once, once that starts happening, I do, I don't want to have to, you know, have a MagSafe battery pack or something always plugged in. So having something with a little bit, you know, longer battery life, even when I'm not running betas would kind of be helpful. Yeah. I, you know, you mentioned MagSafe and it's funny because I've just kind of come to the realization lately that I am like team MagSafe way more than I thought I was. I've got the chargers that I use. I've got, I bought the MagSafe battery which is way overpriced, but super convenient. I mean, I just can't get over Like, we started going to Disneyland again, and I can throw that thing in my pocket or my bag and, like, at, a, like, 2 in the afternoon, just snap it onto the back of my phone and walk around with it in my pocket, and an hour or two later, my phone is good for the rest of the day. And I don't know. I think that's a nice device. I just wish it cost less. And then I also even bought the PopSocket MagSafe thing now. So... That's kind of fun because you just snap it on. And I, I thought it was going to be like something I sent back. It was, but no, it's got a really powerful magnet in it and it's great, you know? Yeah. I, I would love to see them do something with, with MagSafe that justifies kind of the price tag that they've introduced. I know that's one of the things that Apple tends to, to like to do. They'll come in really expensive, which is fine. You know, that's the Apple way. But then after that, they'll start adding features on and the price doesn't change yeah. unless you're talking about something like, you know, AirPods or AirPods Pro, you know, that that's a whole nother design. And but if, if they can put more technology into the same form factor, usually the price stays the same, even though they've added new things to it, um, which I kind of appreciate because you, you just grow to expect it. But I, I remember they used to have well, maybe they still do. They have the little magnetic points um, on the iPad where they use data. And you can transmit data across. I would love to see something like that to where, you know, I can use MagSafe, have the other end plugged into my computer, and then now I can transmit data from there. Or, you know, you have, you know, giant MagSafe connectors for hard drives and things like that, or even a hub. Like, that would be that'd be great if I could just plug a hub, you know, into my phone, or, you know, maybe they'll bring MagSafe to the iPad or something like that. Can you imagine, like, like one of those, like, old, fashion like western digital six terabyte you know spinning drive hard drives that you plug into the wall with like a little circle on the side and you just snap your phone to it <laughs> i think the sad thing is i probably see that before i see one of the smaller ones but then the problem is it's a spinning drive so the magnet would erase <laughs> your data randomly 
Just once in a while, would- maybe once a week. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's like, a good one. Be like going to Vegas with your data. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by One Password, the easiest way to store and use strong passwords. Just go to onepassword.com slash MPU in all caps and get 20% off your plan. One Password is the product that allows you to create, store, and manage strong passwords for all the various websites and services you use without requiring you to remember them yourself. With One Password, you just remember your one password and the application does the rest. But it's so much more. It also gives you the secure vault where you can store secure information. And they have these great plans for your company or your family. The other day, my daughter texted me to say, hey, I just updated the Disney Plus password and one password. And I realized that I'm actually raising my children right. They updated the password and they actually told me about it. But that's really easy with the one password family plan, because all you have to do is update the password in your one password account and it notifies or stores it in the vaults for everybody else in the family. It's just really simple. And we have all these different passwords we're trying to manage. One password does that for us. In my family, we've got a vault that my wife and I share where we keep the banking and some of the more sensitive passwords. And then we've got a separate vault for the entire family. And that's where we have the Disney Plus and the Netflix and the other passwords like that stored. Moving passwords between the vaults is as easy as copying and pasting them. It's just really easy. And it gives me peace of mind as the dad. One password tracks your passwords, so if you have duplicate or weak passwords, it'll tell you. It also keeps track of the websites you're using, so if there's a known compromise at a website you use, it'll tell you you should change your password at that website. I'm not going to keep track of that stuff. I'm really glad One Password does that for me. And best of all, I can recover One Password access for family members so they never get locked out if they lose their One Password. So go ahead and check out 1Password for Families at onepassword.com slash MPU in all caps and introduce your family to better online security and safer browsing habits. I've been a 1Password for Families subscriber for years. In fact, I just got my renewal notice and I'm going to happily pay it. I'm really happy with the way the 1Password for Families has influenced my children's security habits on the internet. And I hope they take that with them once they grow up and move on. Either way, head over to onepassword.com slash MPU in all caps, sign up today, and start making your family safer. All right, one of the reasons I wanted to get you on the show, Jay, is you and I were talking about all the crazy stuff you're doing with video presentation work. And um, as a developer advocate, you know, advocate is part of the word there. And um a lot of us, whether we're in legal or sales or a student trying to advocate for a better grade, all of us are trying to figure out better ways to present ourselves in this world where so much of the communication now is done over the internet. And I don't think that's going away even if the world starts opening up. I think we're still going to be doing that. So please, Jay, share us your secrets. Well, definitely. And, and you know, like you said, you know, part of part of being an advocate for a long time was that let's get in person and have conversations usually over really good food that if anything, like let's bring back the travel so I can enjoy my, my dietary like enjoyment from your around fo- the world. Foodie. <laughs> oh, I, I love finding new food places, but now 
I I have to like look within my local area on like Grubhub and stuff, and I don't think they're sponsoring. But um, yeah. a lot of that travel is done virtually, which is a really interesting concept because it allows you to reach an audience that you may not. I mean, it it's been fun to know that you know I've gotten to present to folks on the other side of the country. I've gotten to present to folks in Africa. I've gotten to present to folks in Asia. Like the, the ability to reach groups and connect with them online uh, gives me way more capability of traveling than I had before and, and learning from people from different uh, cultures. And it takes me back to my military days when I used to you know live overseas and, and travel. But of course, that was always on work as well. But one of the things that I've noticed with the the on the online scene is you have you have like a few groups of people you have like the the bare minimum done like my I'm on zoom my camera's on the lights are all off it's it's a blurry mess um or they're just they just don't have their cameras on period um my my personal favorite the people that have done a lot of work to make their camera look great but then they're not really engaged they're like looking at another screen somewhere so it doesn't look like they're actually talking to you which is always funny when it's like you've you've done all this work but i don't really get to experience a conversation with you i get to experience a conversation with the side of your face or your forehead you know and to me now the third group is kind of the group that i want to bring more people into which is you know you've you've checked the boxes your camera is is you know, pretty good. And there's plenty of ways to make that happen. Your lighting is amazing, which is really the difference maker on, you know, video quality. And then on top of that, when we're having a conversation, it feels like I'm, I'm talking to you and I'm looking at you and you're looking back at me and not, you know, the side of my head. Yeah. I mean, that, that one point about the location of the camera is one that's a, I think a lot of people get tripped up on that. Um, I have a fancy camera lens and uh, a fancy camera that I can plug into my computer. But we had a, um, my wife was doing job interviews and she found it really hard to look at the camera to the side while she's being interviewed with the person that she sees on screen. So we moved the camera. So the camera is right at the top of the center of the monitor. And that made all the difference for her. And ever since that, I've noticed that when I talk with somebody who has a fancy camera, so often I am looking at the side of their face throughout the conversation. Absolutely. And and sometimes it's just as simple as taking that video call window and bringing it as close to the camera as possible. That way, you know, if if it's only a few millimeters up, you might look like you're looking a little bit beyond them, but but it's much better compared to, you know, the person looking down in a way and you're like, are, are you paying attention to me? You know, when, when you're talking that I, and I mean, there's, there's also some of the other good things with presentations, making sure you have do not disturb set on, which um, I run, I probably run more apps on that than I should. I'm sure they probably fight with each other from time to time. Yeah. But I, I think that, you know, you, a lot of the the interesting moments that happen and become you know cemented on YouTube or is when you know you're you're giving a presentation you're doing well and then all of a sudden you get a text message or you know someone messages you and 
funny enough, as I'm saying this now, my wife just messaged me and it literally popped up on every single device except for my MacBook, which I'm recording on. Um, so, you know, having those moments pop up where someone says, oh, hey, don't forget to to go to the store and pick up, you know, whatever, whatever. And all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're a little embarrassed because you're sharing your screen and people see that. Um, so, yeah, you know, I, I run a few apps for Do Not Disturb, uh, Serenity being one, which just kind of overall manages what apps I allow to okay. use notifications. So I've never heard of Serenity. What What is it? So Serenity is, and we're, we're probably going to you say this word a lot, um, it's a set app app or an app on set app. Sure. Um, and the idea of it is to make sure that the amount of notification sounds that you hear. Um, I'm sure people, if we played the the Slack sound or the the messages sound or any of those notifications, like it's almost like a Pavlovian response. Now you're like, oh wait, I gotta go check this. Um, so sometimes just removing the sound is enough, and that's what Serenity does. You can still get those notifications but you don't get the noise that comes with it. And it's you can do it per, on a per app basis. So you can say which apps you want to make noise and which apps you do, uh, or which apps you want to make noise and which apps you don't want to make noise. Um, and I've, I've just started using it a few, about a two or three weeks ago, but I have noticed that my my working environment has been quieter, which tends to keep me from getting distracted but it also has the side effect of, you know, because I record for podcasts, I often have my input device being something that will play system sounds because I use a soundboard. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you, you don't want to be recording and all of a sudden have a giant ping in the middle of it. And then you have to go and, you know, record all, all that stuff over again. Um, but uh, that that's serenity. I, I mean, it, I, I tend to like apps that do a simple thing and you know, do it well. Yeah, I just downloaded it because I'm the same way. I I keep um I have like a communications um screen on my computer, so I've got like Slack and messages and things over there, but it's out of sight. And you're right, during the day while I'm working, I'll hear the Slack noise or the messages noise, and it it is tempting to jump over to it. So why not? Especially like when it goes off repeatedly, and then. You go over and you find out it was really about nothing. It is interesting how the sound can distract you more than the little pop-up that comes up on the side. And of course, I know we're all looking forward to focus happening. And um, when focus modes come to uh, Monterey, I think that'll be something that I'll I'll love to play around with a little bit. But until then, I think Serenity does a great job. Yeah. Any other apps you'd recommend for, uh, for Do Not Disturb? Yeah, so there's another one. It's also a set app um, application called No Notify. Um, this one is, I say it has a little bit more smarts to it. Basically, you can tell it whenever a certain application is um, open or if it's the frontmost app, automatically set my do not disturb. Um, so very similar to, uh, another tool that I could talk about with about bunch where I have like bunch triggers that say, Hey, do all these things that happen. And then set do not disturb to make that happen. This one kind of does it on its own. And you, you don't necessarily have to worry about like automations or going into a mode through a certain route. It's just, 
hey, if the application's open, do not disturb is on. When you exit that application, do not disturb turns off. If that, you can even set it to where if it's only the frontmost application. So if you're giving a presentation, you're going to have, um, we'll, we'll say Keynote, given the, the latest uh, Mac Power Users episode. Sure. Uh, if you have Keynote open, you know you can say, hey, while Keynote's the frontmost application, do not disturb is automatically on. So while I'm presenting, I know I'm not going to get any uh, notifications that pop up or, or any of those pinging sounds. I love it when you can get an app that does the thinking for you on stuff like that. And um, I'm going to be curious to see, like, I haven't been able to test focus mode as well on my Mac as I would like, because I've got to keep all the podcasting tools and the Mac has to stay back, you know, with the prior operating system. But, you know, will that be the right solution or will it be something like this where you roll maybe a keyboard maestro script or something like this app? to turn off um, notifications for you. Yeah, I definitely think there's a benefit to any application that will just say, don't change your process. We will adapt to what your process is and we'll, we'll do what needs to happen. Yeah. Um, I think that's kind of the goal for most people when they use something like Keyboard Maestro is, I, I don't want to have to manually trigger things. I want to be able to just use them and know that it becomes a part of my workflow to do this thing. And just when I do it, keyboard maestro knows, Hey, you're in this mode or you're, you're doing this. I'm going to execute this logic. Yeah. There's plenty of hard stuff for all of us to think about. If we can get offload some of the easy stuff, that would, that would be great. You know, and that's what this technology is all about. I was thinking uh, one point I want to go back on about the camera offset. Another way to manage that camera offset. I meant to say earlier, I just forgot. Um, is that uh, this is an excellent use case for the sidecar. Um, like if you have a camera that's to the left of your main screen, the trick is just put your Zoom call or whatever on a sidecar-enabled iPad and stick it right under the lens. And that's another good way to get your eyes back on the camera. Absolutely. And, and like you said, it, it is very much get whatever window you're going to be operating out of as close to that camera as possible. Um, or, you know, down the road, if we, if we talk about, you know, having a teleprompter, it literally becomes the thing that you're looking at your camera. You're looking at your camera and the screen at the same time, um, which, which is a really cool setup. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Um, what do you think of, so you talked earlier about the importance of lighting but that is a, such a nebulous concept. I mean, there are people who will go on YouTube and watch all the lighting videos and deal with all of that. But for a lot of folks, that's like a bridge too far. Um, what can you tell people to help out with lighting? I, I am definitely that person that looks at all the lighting videos. Um, I, I think a lot of it depends on a couple of things. Uh, one, how much natural lighting do you have in your space? And then also, do you wear glasses? Um, those, those tend to be kind of the, the two things you got to answer. Uh, everyone wants a ring light, uh, ring lights, they give, they give you the funny pupils and, you know, they've been made famous by TikTok and, you know, a lot of YouTubers now use them, but you'll notice most of those people don't wear glasses, um, because ring lights can also give you a gigantic glare on your glasses. So you have that problem. You also have the problem of if you put the lighting directly in front of you, then it shows up in your glasses and, you know, you you look like a, a cartoon character with just the white light 
<laughs> reflecting from your eyes. Um, but then also if you put it onto the side, then you have this weird instance of looking somewhat like an evil villain where only half of your face is properly lit. Yeah. Um, and, and this is kind of the, the challenge. So what, what I would always suggest is go with a diffused light. Um, that way you don't get any shiny spots on your face, but then also find those points to where your light can sit to where you have as much light on you as possible diffused without giving you a large glare. And for me, that tends to be overhead. Um, but I also just bought a bunch of more lights. So soon yeah. I'll be going with the having four different lights on like many different sides. But again, my, my use case is very different. Most people can, you know, get away with having just one good solid light um, that gives them a good balance across their entire profile. Yeah. And, and just to, to pile on with this topic, usually uh, you have a window in the room that you do these meetings with. And so open the window and see where you're lit by natural lighting. That's the best anyway. And like in my case, I stuck my desk up against a large window. So I have tons of light coming in all around my monitor and I don't need a light, any lighting when I do Zoom calls or that type of call. But when I turn around and do like stuff for Max Sparky or, or webinars or whatnot, I do need some. So, so you look at, you know, what is the natural state and then you correct for it. Like if you've got a window on the right side coming in from your right, then maybe get a little LED light off Amazon. They're like fifty dollars, honestly. They aren't that. Ex you don't have to go crazy. And the LEDs are they low power. You can run on batteries. Even they they don't get hot. You know, because you know if we had this conversation five years ago, we'd be telling people to buy these lights that like you know heat make you sweat because they're so hot. You know. That you know, none of those problems exist anymore, and it doesn't cost that much money. But just look at where you're starting, and like if you have a dark side of your face with what you're going, you're doing, getting a little light and just sticking it on a little tripod or whatever is going to massively improve the quality of your camera and the way you look compared to everybody else on the call. Absolutely, I remember the first few couple of years that I was making YouTube videos and, and working with people, I had heat lamps that I was using for lighting and I would literally just tape a piece of printer paper over it to diffuse oh, wait, the light. A, a heat lamp? Oh my god! Like the, like the, you can, but they're like $2 at like Home Depot. So, yeah. you know, you get what you can and you just put like a, you know, an LED bulb in there and you just plug it in and it bounces the light off. And, and like I said, you can get away with just putting a, a piece of printer paper over it and just taping it onto the front of the heat lamp. And that worked as a really easy light diffuser. Um, nowadays, I I have a little bit more, uh, I guess, high tech lighting uh, situation from um, LumiCube and Elgato. But I, I mean, I always tell people work with what you have and you don't have to go out and spend hundreds of dollars on lighting until you're, you know, once you're getting paid to do these videos, then maybe that's when you do it. But um, if you're just wanting to make, you just want to look a little bit better on your next uh, zoom call. I, I think there are ways that you can do it that aren't too expensive. Yeah. Okay. So loom cube was a company that kind of made its bones with a really tiny light that you could fit in your pocket. 
And it's great, like, if you're taking an iPhone out and you want an alternate lighting source for night photography. And they're, they're like, waterproof. They've got a magnet on the back of them so you can stick them to things. People use them with their drones, for instance. But they've really kind of opened up a whole new category of products for people shooting video at home. What what did you get from LumCube? So I have the LumiCube Panel Go, which is a little bit larger than the the traditional cube it's it's a rectangle it's about uh, i would say about it's about a three by five actually it's about the size of an index card um but it of course that means it's got you know a nice grid of about a hundred and something leds in there that you know really make your face pop and of course you can do the lighting settings and and different light temperatures and you know different contrast to it which that was kind of why I went that route. Um, again, my job at some point travels involved. So you want something small enough that you can, you know, pack with you, pack in your go bag, but you can also adjust it based on, you know, whether the, the hotel room has a window or not. Um, and, you know, you don't, you don't want to have it be too bright and blinding you, but you also want to make sure you got enough uh, space, you know, space and lighting, if that makes sense to, to fine tune and adjust so that you're not coming out, you know, super bright or super shiny as I call it. Um, and I think that this was, this was kind of a good middle ground to that. It also has some tripod stands. So, and it came with a actual tripod. So, um, I can just attach it and set it down right behind my monitor and, you know, adjust it as I need to. Yeah, and then you also uh, mentioned that you're using the Elgato Key Light, which is a very popular light for this problem. Yeah, so I have I have an Elgato Key Light, and I actually have two Key Light Airs on the way. Um, the Airs just so that if I need to move around, I have a little bit more mobility. But the thing I like about the Key Light system is that you can mount it. Um, I also have the Elgato Master Mount system, so. There's like 15 things attached to that thing, and it looks like Doc Ock behind my computer screen. Uh, but at the same time, it gives me the ability to set everything the way that I want it and then just leave it there and not worry about it. But again, the the key light errors are nice because you get that same quality lighting, but it's a little bit more mobile. If you need to, you know, for instance, right now I'm recording when what I call my remote remote office. Um that way it's a little bit quieter. And if I were doing video presentations here, which I do regularly, I don't want to have to take my key lights off the mount and bring them into the other room and then set them up in there. But I can unplug two key light airs and then just set them on, you know, at the table and then present and still have a pretty good lighting solution. Yeah. And the Elgato stuff is great. I mean, they're the same company that makes the stream deck. So you can attach the Elgato key lights to your stream deck and, They've got nice controls. I, I have really become a fan of a lot of their products. Um, a friend of mine, Mike Schmitz, just bought the low-profile mic stand that they have that lays low where you can slide your mic in and out, in and out without having this big arm over the top. And you know they, they are answering problems that have come up with all these folks working at home. I think it's interesting that even even in kind of in this time, you had Elgato, which was originally a gaming, you know, they're, they were a gaming company for live streaming, yeah. um, kind of come in and address like, you can use this for more than just gaming, you know, you got to think about it, like, 
people who are live streaming and they make their living doing that are trusting these tools to look and sound their best, you know, on stream multiple times throughout the week to hundreds of thousands of people, you know, so why wouldn't you trust it with your Zoom call of 15 people? Or if you're given a big presentation, why wouldn't you trust them to look and sound your best just because it has that gaming moniker to it? And I think Elgato has also done a really good job of, of dispelling that myth and going beyond to also make things that are one, they look nice, they operate nice, but then they also are aesthetically pleasing. So you don't feel like you have to be a gamer and subscribe to the gaming culture, like all the flashing lights and things like that happening around. You can have a really professional setup and still go this route that many gamers have trusted for years on end. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Text Expander from Smile. Get 20% off with the link in the show notes, textexpander.com slash podcast, and type more with less effort. Text Expander removes the repetition out of work so you can focus on what matters most. With Text Expander, you can say goodbye to repetitive text entry, spelling, and message errors, and trying to remember the right thing to say. When you use Text Expander, you can say the right thing in just a few keystrokes. It's better than copy and paste or scripts and templates because text expander snippets allow you to maximize your time by getting rid of the repetitive things you type while still customizing and personalizing your messages. For instance, with text expander, you can put a fill-in field. So if you have a text expander email, you can put a fill-in field for the recipient. So it says, dear David, instead of dear or to whom it may concern or something like that. It even repeats those fields. So I could have the David field repeated in the email and it personalizes it throughout. With Technics Matter, you can also do things like hard coding tab keys so you can tab from the subject line to the body. You can run Apple scripts to make it even more customized. There's just so much you can do with this. It also inserts date and time or does date and time math so you can put that in your snippets as well. I just find so many uses for Text Expander, both as a nerd and as a lawyer, that uh, I really couldn't get by without it. If you haven't tried Text Expander yet, you should. We've got a great deal for you. Just go over to textexpander.com slash podcasts and sign up there for MPU. Tell them you heard about it here in Mac Power Users. You'll get 20% off your plan and uh, really start saving time immediately. So join Stephen and I and a whole bunch of other people and start using Text Expander today. That link again is textexpander.com slash podcast to learn more and sign up. Thanks, Text Expander, for all of your support of the Mac Power users. Well, you mentioned earlier, Jay, the idea of using uh, cameras or alternate cameras to improve your video call. Um, one of the ones that came up recently on the show was Camo, and I noted that you're a fan of that app too. Where are you using Camo? So I've I've tried most of the uh, use your phone as your camera uh, process. Yeah, I tend to use it now as a secondary camera. Sure, um, that's that's something you know for me if I'm working on if I'm doing a product demo or if I'm you know, if I want to have multiple camera angles in my presentations, which I try not to get too fancy most of the time, but sometimes it just makes sense. Um, that's when I'll I'll use something like Camo or um, again, Elgato has they purchased a company called Epic, which or Epoch. I'm not sure how that's pronounced, um, but they have an app that kind of does something something similar, but 
kind of less features. I think that's the thing I really like about uh, camo is that they give you the capability. If you if you're willing to pay for it, you can really dial in, you know, your look and feel from your camera and you can control it from your computer. And I think that's kind of the big thing that uh, some of the other apps like um, NDI's NDX app, uh, the NDX HD, I think is what it's called. That, you know, that one you're controlling everything from your phone, which is kind of hard to do when your phone is set up and, you know, is looking at you. Whereas with Camo, they also give you that uh, that software on your computer that you can go in and you can start making some of the adjustments that you need to. Yeah. And then for hooking up the big boy camera, what do you recommend? So I use an Elgato cam link. Um, again, we should really talk to Elgato about sponsoring. Yeah, I guess show. I should. They've, they've got enough of my money already. They could probably pay for the sponsorship with all the stuff I bought from them. Well, they're right. They're right up the road from me. So that, that I tend to go with them for the faster shipping times. But, uh, but I have a, a cam link 4k that I use. My, my camera is a Sony a 6400. So it's capable of putting out 4k video. So I wanted to get a, a converter that could also do that. Uh, funny enough, I also use that same cam link 4k to, uh, connect my Nintendo entertainment system uh, to my <laughs> computer. If I ever want to share that. So wait, wait, Nintendo uh, entertainment. Is that the one, the, the really old one? With, that, with... that is the really old one with the, the gigantic cartridges and everyone has their own cheat code into getting your games to work. And the gun, the gun with the, uh, with... yeah, the light gun that the comes gun. with it. All right, man. I love that. Now, now what you need to do is connect that to uh, an Apple Pro Display XDR. I think uh, Nintendo <laughs> deserves to be displayed through a $7,000 monitor. Uh, if if Apple wants to send me a Pro Display, I will happily play Tetris on it and, and share that with the world. <laughs> um, uh, one other piece of giving presentations is presentation software. You talked about Keynote earlier, but I felt like your heart wasn't really in it when you were saying keynote. I, I want to know what's, what's up, Jay. I mean, what, what's, what's going on with your presentation software? So I actually use uh, an app called Dexet, uh, which uses plain text documents or markdown documents to create presentations. And a lot of that is I, I'm not a fiddly person I don't like apps where I have to fiddle with them a lot. Uh, I, I'd rather just type away, know exactly what I want it to look like, put in the commands to make that happen, and then it works. Um, so uh, no no hatred towards uh, Keynote or, or Google Slides. I'll, I'll use them if I have to, but uh, I tend to like Dexet because if I'm creating an outline, it's usually something that's going to be Markdown-esque. And then from there, I literally just give Dexet that markdown file and it makes the slides. And then I there's a couple of commands that I can put in to kind of move things or adjust them as I need to. But it's really simple. Um, there is also another um, application on the iPad, which I have to remember the name of. I want to say it's it's HyperDeck. Uh, yeah, uh, it's called HyperDeck. It is kind of that similar style of like you write in Markdown and then it creates a presentation based on that Markdown. Um, I've played with it once. I've given a couple, I've given a couple of presentations with it. I like it. Um, 
again, most of my qualms with presentation software is it can get too fiddly trying to figure out how to work with files. And I mean, iPad OS's files application just needs some love in general, but uh, that kind of keeps me away from that. But yeah, Dexet is kind of where I go. I actually, if I'm planning kind of long-term, I might use a craft document and I have a video where I show how I use the text bundle um, export and craft to create presentations in Dexet. And that means I can have the benefit of my presenter's notes also being the presentation. And then I can share the craft link so that if people want to go, you know, look over my notes again or look over the presentation, they get it, but they also get the most up-to-date version of it, which is which is really cool. Um, but yeah, Dexet's kind of where I go when it comes to doing presentations. Yeah, I'm, I've, you know, I've played with Dexet, and you're right. If you have a markdown file, it turns into a presentation very quickly. But I'm just not a fan of word, word-based word presentations, you know, presentations full of words. And that's what Dexet really is by its nature. I think if you were giving a presentation to a group of developers and you want to put code snippets in and put bullet points, I think that would make a lot of sense. But for a lot of the stuff I do, it's just not convincing enough to people. You know, just words. So that's why I've never really bitten on Dexet, but I get it. I and I have so many nerd friends that love Dexet. If you want to make a quick mark quick and dirty but beautiful markdown based presentation, I, I think it's the one. Um uh, but you have now raised the subject of craft, and that's another secret reason I wanted you on the show. Because every time on Mac Power Users um, that the opportunity comes up, I seem to be banging the drum for Obsidian, which is this strange, you know, Electron app that I'm running now full time. But I always see in our forums a group of listeners saying, "What's wrong with Sparky? You know, Craft is the is the app he should be using for personal knowledge management and the stuff he's doing." And uh, I have played with Craft; it didn't stick with me. But I want, that's why I wanted to have you talk, because I know you're super into it. And uh, tell me about Craft, what it does, and, and how you're using it. Yeah, so Craft is very much a, a PKM, personal knowledge management tool. Um, I know at the end of the year, I believe, a lot of people were talking about it. Um, it was a finalist for that Apple Design Awards and... Um, it's also a really good example of how a Catalyst app can be executed on, um, I guess, in a really effective way. Um, I know that there have been uh, many people out there that have criticized how, you know, oh, Catalyst apps are kind of done lazily or, you know, they're direct ports and they're not, you know, a lot of those concerns are are heard and are valid. But yeah, Craft is is very much... Uh, another one of those entrances into the block-based uh, note-taking system where every paragraph or so of content is considered a block, and that allows you to reference content at the block level. So I can, obviously, you can search for content within it, but you can also say, you know, I want this block to be formatted this way or to look this other way. I, I like to often make, you know, tell people it's, it's very similar to what Notion is doing, but 
kind of with that native Mac app feel. Yeah, I, I think you've hit on something there because that was my impression too. Like Notion and Craft are like cousins, just like Obsidian and Rome are cousins. There's they they play much more similarly to each other. And when you compare Notion to Obsidian, I don't really know that it, that's the right comparison because you know Notion is this craft. I'm sorry, this is block based build your own system system but it's all web-based. I mean, when we did the show on Notion and we had the Notion expert on, the service went down while we were prepping the show and it was a big pain, whereas Craft um, is right on your Mac. And even though it is Catalyst, it's still, I would consider that a native app. And they've got a great version for iPhone, iPad, and, and Mac. So it's like a native version of Notion, but it's missing some tools. Like, have they got tables in it yet? You say they're missing tools. <laughs> and okay. I think that, that that's the that's probably one of the big conversation points. And that's I mean, to be honest, that's actually one of the complaints that I have about craft is that uh in a world where app developers have to provide a bunch of features, craft has to add those features. Um I tend to be the kind that says I will find the tool that has the features that I need and I will work with that tool and I don't need it to add anything else. Okay. Uh, but craft very much was that, but no, they don't have tables yet, but that is something that's supposed to be coming out later this year as well as tagging. Um, and they've also added some new calendaring features to kind of give you that daily agenda view or uh, for those that like to try to do like a digital bullet journal. Um, there's, there's been some experiments with that and, um, I've even uh, kind of led some of those experiments, but um, it just some of those things aren't for me. They're, I, I prefer my bullet journals to be notebooks, and um, you know that's fine. I, I think that I, I think that not every tool has to have every single feature. I think it's how you implement the features that you choose to do is what makes your app stand out against your competitors. And I, I think at the end of the day, there's always going to be people that will say, yeah, but your app doesn't do this. And it's like, well, I mean, yeah, my app also isn't a jet engine, you know, that can tell also teleport me from San Diego to L.A. in two seconds. But I'm yeah. not complaining about it. Yeah. I'm using the app for what it is. Exactly. No, I, I get it. I, I, I to me, the line for me between Obsidian and Craft was much closer than you may think. I mean, Obsidian is interesting because it's like changing constantly and it has this third-party plugin architecture and that's like catnip for someone like me. But the native app element of Craft, I think, is where it really sells. And I know why a lot of the listeners prefer it because it's a native app and like your text tools work there and you, it looks like a Mac app and it looks like an iPhone app, whereas you know, Obsidian really doesn't. Um, where, where I lost me was, and, you know, credit to the developers. I wrote them and said, Hey, what's your, um, plan for end to end encryption? Because I actually want to use these apps to track progress on legal projects I'm working on. So I want complete control of my encryption. And they're like, well, we're looking into that, but it's, you know, really not on the radar right now. We've got all this other stuff we're working on. And they were completely honest with me about it, which, you know, is so that's so awesome because often developers will say, Oh yeah, that's next. Even though they don't have any intention of ever doing it, you know, just to get you in. And, uh, these guys, I feel like they're, they're the real deal. They want to make an amazing app, but it just, there was a couple features missing that, that wouldn't work for me. But 
I am a fan of of craft, which is why I wanted to kind of give it some time here on Mac Power Users. Now, now tell us how you're using it in your day day to day life. So, uh, as I mentioned a little earlier, my my product my productivity system side of things is covered, and then my project management side of things are also covered by you know tools that I have to use at work. But there was a hole for collaborative note taking. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, Conduit that I do with Kathy Campbell, and we manage the entire podcast in, in craft. So uh, every episode is a, a document, and we, we have a template that we use where we just duplicate the template and we fill it out. Um, there's a checklist in there that we go through every recording to make sure that uh, we get our audio off to the editor and that we work on the show notes and who's responsible for doing what. And the way that our show is set up, it's kind of similar to MPU where we take turns, you know, as the quote unquote host. And, you know, we manage that as well. Like, oh, hey, this is this is Jay's presentation or this is Kathy's. Um, so we do that. Um, we also track all of our future episodes that we have planned. And that's where that block based system works really well, because you can just have a checklist of like, oh, here's a list of all the different topics that we want to cover and then, oh, I like that one. Let's make that one an episode. And then you turn it into a page and it's there and it's ready to go. Uh, the other side of that is with my job, I, I do a lot of coordinating with uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion companies and organizations around the world. And anytime someone tells you like, oh, you know, we're planning a, an event or a sponsorship or all of these things, they take time. So it's nice to have like an a a single space that I can go to that says like, okay, let's update, you know, this organization based on the meeting that we had. And um, as I mentioned before, craft has this daily view that integrates with your calendar. So every event that you have, you have the ability to create a document based on that event. Um, So it's really cool that I can, I can make that event you know, when I'm in the event, I turn that event into a document. I'm taking my notes and then I just tag it with the same tag as the ongoing project that we have. So then if I go back into craft later on, I can go, well, you know, I just go to that page and I'll see at the bottom, it says, oh, links to this page. And I can see that meeting that we had and go back and review the notes and, and coordinate it. So it it's not necessarily the, the project management side, but it's more of the record keeping as well as kind of just timeline tracking of what's going on in those projects and what I'm what I've left to do or what I what I need to be thinking about in the, before the next meeting. Yeah, and another reason why I draw that line between craft and notion is the excellent collaboration. You know, Rome and Obsidian really aren't built for that, but with with craft, you can have a public page, which I'm assuming you and Kathy probably share. Or you can go in and do all this work together and you don't have to worry about like trying to like cobble together a Google sheet or something. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Squarespace. Go to squarespace.com MPU and make your next move and enter offer code MPU at checkout to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform to build your online presence and run your business. From websites and online stores to marketing tools and analytics, they've got you covered. 
Squarespace combines cutting-edge design and world-class engineering, making it easier than ever to establish your home online and make your ideas a reality. Squarespace has everything you need to create a beautiful and modern website. You start with a professionally designed template and use drag-and-drop tools to make it your own. You can customize the look and feel and settings, the products you have on sale, and more with just a few clicks. And all Squarespace websites are optimized for mobile, so your content automatically adjusts so it will look great on any device. You'll get free unlimited hosting with Squarespace, top-of-the-line security, and dependable resources to help you succeed. There's nothing to patch or upgrade. They have award-winning 24-7 customer support if you need any help. They'll even let you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name. Plus, you'll have everything you need for SEO and email marketing to get your ideas out there. You can use Squarespace to turn your big idea into a new website, showcase your work with their incredible portfolio designs, publish your next blog post, promote your business, announce an upcoming event, and much more. I've been a Squarespace subscriber for many years. I subscribe for both Max Sparky and for my law practice. Also, we have a couple other subscriptions in the house. My kids have sites, and my wife and I have a site for the Disneyland Field Guide. Uh, but just recently, I decided I didn't like the look of MaxSparky.com, so I went in Squarespace and used one of their pre-designed templates and then started tweaking it to make it work for me, and I'm super happy with the way the website came out, and all of that was done with the built-in Squarespace tools. So head over to squarespace.com MPU for a free trial with no credit card required. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code MPU to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Once again, that's squarespace.com MPU. And when you decide to sign up, use the offer code MPU to get that 10% off your first purchase and show your support for the Mac Power users. Our thanks to Squarespace for their support of the Mac Power users and all of Relay FM. Now, before the break, we were talking about craft, and one of the points that we really didn't get into is collaboration. I feel like that is a major selling point for craft, and one of the reasons why I tie lines between craft and notion, the idea of collaboration, because Obsidian and Rome, you know, the other two big players in this PKM space, don't really do that. But craft does give you the ability to easily make a public page out of your notes. How how are you, is that the stuff you're doing with Kathy? Yeah. So the the public pages I use for my presentation. So like I said, those are kind of my show notes, and that's how I I create my present you know my presenters notes versus my you know presentations and deck set, and people get access to that, and they can just click the link and it takes them to it and often I'll short link it. So it's just a bit.ly or what, or, you know, something like that. But with Kathy, we have a shared space, which uh, I think if there was, there was any one complaint that I had about craft is I wish that they would support real time updates in on the web. Uh, so that if, if someone, you know, if I'm in a meeting and I send someone like, Oh, Hey, the meeting notes can be here then as I'm updating the page, they're seeing the updates, whereas now they actually have to refresh. But that, you know, that's not a big deal. Um, there are other tools for that. But with Kathy and I, we have, you know, a separate space from, you know, what she's doing with Roboism or some of her other shows and what I'm doing with my job and and kind of my own personal area. And, you know, we can just sit there and work together. And um, I often tell people that, the point when we were demoing uh, 
conduit as a show, it was amazing to see how fast we were able to just, you know, throw ideas in and leave feedback on each other's ideas. And, you know, it's even something as simple as coming up with, you know, the name of the podcast, you know, someone put in, what about the productivity, productivity podcast or something like that? No, 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 I don't like it too redundant or whatever. What about this name? No, 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 no. And like, you, you just sit there and you're just typing back and forth and it was almost faster just typing out the ideas and getting it out and being able to respond to them than it was to just verbally say those things. Um, and that was, it was a really cool experience in doing that. Now, are you also using craft for, you know, personal knowledge? I mean, are you putting like, for example, I have a note in obsidian on my dog and I've got the vet and an activity log of any time I have to like take her in to get a shot or whatever. And, things like that. Um, so it's like personal knowledge that I just want to keep at a handy place. Do you do any of that type of stuff with craft? I'm personally not, um, I'm not the best when it comes to, uh, personal knowledge management. A lot of, a lot of that goes with using tools like hook where I can say, Hey, this is some cool information. Let me just make sure I have a record of it somewhere and then I can do a universal search for it um, or use hook to search for it and link it to other um, items, including maybe craft notes. But I I think that tends to be the area where, you know, a notion or, or sorry, where Rome or obsidian. And like you said, kind of differs from craft is that that personal knowledge base. I, I just, I've never been able to make that work for me. Um, Not to say that it, you know, has to, or not to say that, you know, there's a flaw in having it or not having it. Um, I've, I personally live out of my notebook. So uh, to me, that is my personal knowledge management. And that tends to be my management for about four to six months at a time. And then from there, I take out all the important stuff and migrate it into the next notebook and move along. (laughs) So what you're saying is you'd have to be anal retentive to keep a markdown page about your dog, but you said it really nicely. <laughs> I, I don't think that's true. I, I just, I just know that um, that's that's a responsibility that my wife handles and probably doesn't trust me with. Okay, so, gotcha. Um, I, I tend to let her do it, and, and I know we have we have the the folder that has like the the table on it we're like oh last visit was this time at this date and all of this and um you know that plus the giant wall calendar that we have that has all the you know family pets included doctors appointments and things on it we can we can tend to find that information pretty quickly uh but that said i'm i'm also a cat person and if the cat has a problem she just tells me. <laughs> you know, there you I don't go. Have to think about it too there much. You go. The uh, the reason I asked that though is one in my exploration of the craft. Uh, you know, it's very much kind of when you organize your notes, it's a folder based system. And thankfully, they added nested folders. When they originally had it out, it was just one layer of folders, which was rough. But they added nested folders, so it's very easy to kind of put something together that way. But I'm just curious if anybody, and maybe this is something for the forums. If anybody's using craft for true personal knowledge management, how are you structuring data? Because I feel like that's the only model that I could come up with. And I wanted something more flexible. But but then you said that they're probably going to, that they're working on tags. And I think tags would be another way to kind of organize that data. 
eventually. Yeah, there, there's a couple of shortcuts there. Um, like you said, the nested folders have been really nice, and I'm glad that they they added the ability to infinitely nest. Uh, that said, let's let's not get too crazy. Yeah, agreed. Um, also, with with block based systems, I I tend to uh, maybe it's the developer in me. I I tend to not want not to care as much about the structure as long as I can search for what I'm looking for and find it. Yeah. Um, so I tend to have nested documents. So in one page, there might be 50 blocks and each of those blocks is actually another page with yeah. its own information. Um, so as long as I can find it, I'm good. Well, that's kind of the magic of it, right? Yeah. yeah so th- that actually is an answer to my question. You know, I mean, really just, just combine it into like a, um, a reference page and just make everything an individual block off of that. Yeah. And there's a, um, there's a system that I've, I've mostly used now where I've kind of made tagging work where I have a document where the only thing in the document is just the name. Um, and that's like my tag document. So anytime I want to reference something, I just link to that tag and then if you go and search that page, when it pulls up at the bottom of that page, it'll say, here are all the other pages that have referenced this document. So then I can just click on that and I have a you know a long list of, of items there. And then again, there are things that like you could use hook to, to link two pages together. So if you're on one page, you hit the key commands and then all of a sudden you have a list of all the other pages that are related to that one page. Yeah, we had Luke on the show, uh, I think it was last year or earlier this year, about Hook. And um, I think listeners still sometimes have a a hard time wrapping their mind around Hook. So let's just go down that rabbit hole for a minute. Um, uh, Explain in your words, you know, what is Hook to you and how are you using it? So Hook recently actually got a a good update, which kind of changed how I use it um, a little. Um, Hook now also integrates with Pinboard, um, GoodNotes, and Instapaper. So if I'm on the web and I'm searching for something, I can just hook it, which is, you know, the the verb. Uh, You use the keystroke commands and say, hey, copy this to Hook. And now it'll automatically add an entry into whatever Read It Later services you have enabled. For me, I use Pinboard and GoodNotes. I don't know why I use them both, but, you know, that's neither here nor there. Um, But I use that to kind of say, hey, I now have a record of this entry. And then if I'm looking for something, if I know that I've seen it before, then I just activate hook and start searching. And, you know, usually it pops up and then I can also see anything that I've hooked to it. So with hook, you can have a single item. But you, similar to how you would copy and paste, you can copy and paste one hook record to another hook record. And that's kind of the, the idea of hooking the two together. So for instance, we have our, our planning document here. I might have the planning document hooked to the calendar event in Fantastical, hooked to eventually when this show goes live, hooked to the, the link on it. So if someone says, oh, hey, what was that, you know, thing that you were talking about in the show, I can go to the show page, activate hook, find the document and click to the document. And then it's there and I can find it and then get back to whoever that person, whatever that person asked for. Yeah. Um, 
that tends to be my process. Uh, like I said, especially when I'm working with things that have, you know, these four to six month, you know, timelines of, of working on things, I might go down a rabbit hole and I need to hook, you know, six or seven pages all to a, a calendar event. That way, when we have our next meeting, I just activate hook again and say, hey, what are what are all the things I need to discuss with this person or with this organization? And then I have that laundry list of items and I can just copy them all into Markdown, add them to my craft note for that event. And I now have an agenda set. Yeah, I do something very similar, but I keep that those running hook links in Obsidian. So I've got a place I know I can always go and find them. But uh, hook really is an organic way to connect different things together. Maybe it's an OmniFocus project and a web page and a document or a file. And like one of the one of the hidden features of Hook, I think not enough people realize, is it gives you a way to create a link to a file on your Mac. Apple doesn't do that. I mean, there, there's just not a good way to say, take this Word document and give me a link I can press anywhere and open it up. Um, so it it really is a powerful application, whether you just use it to pull links or you use it to actually hook things together. I mean, that's the reason we had Luke on the show. And the way that they've set that up as well, you have the ability to, even if you move the file, even if yeah. the file, I've had items that have been hooked that are in my trash. And I'm like, wait, how, why is this not working properly? Yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully we can get that fixed. But it, yeah. it's great to know that I don't have to remember where the thing is. I just have to remember that it's in hook. Yeah. It's really powerful. And, and, you know, I think that one of the best things you can do to be a power user at any technology is to figure out the contextual nature of it. This is a drum I bang on every chance I get. But the, the idea that I want to work on Project X now, and I only want my computer to feed me things related to Project X. I don't want it to distract me with email about, you know, the sale at REI. I don't want it to give me notifications from the Slack channel about, you know, my uh, Dungeons and Dragons club or whatever. You know, you just, you just want to be able to focus on Project X. And Hook is really a great tool for that problem. I, I think if there was a, a way to summarize most of this conversation, it's that we're both into the, um, I don't want to say mindful, but I, I like to refer to it as like having the hunter mentality of like, I know what I need to be doing. I know how to set up my environment and I know how to go to the things that I want to get. And what I need my system to do is to, stay out of the way and yeah. like clear the path for me so that I can go exactly where I need to go without any distractions or interruptions. Yeah. I, I don't know if it's um, true or not. I read recently the difference between monkey DNA and human DNA is like 4%. You know, it's like we are all just barely, just barely escaping from all I can think about is a banana, right? We're all so close to that. And we need, if we're going to use this technology, we got to find a way to have it assist us, you know, stay on target. Exactly. Earlier you had said in the show, and I just want to cover this real quickly, Mac mini as a server, uh, nobody, you can't say that on Mac power users without explaining <laughs> what are you doing with the <laughs> Mac mini? Yeah. So my Mac mini, my Mac mini is actually probably my favorite favorite computing device. Um, it was one of the, the first 
uh, computers that I bought uh, when I, you know, decided I'm going to be professional about this stuff. Um, but now it, it serves as my my home management server. And uh, before people start asking for links to, you know, movies and music and stuff, I, I don't really do any of that. Uh, but what I do is I run a pie hole, which um, very similar to the ad blocking software that a lot of people have on their their phones and computers. Um, but this is like a, a dedicated server that I use as my DNS. I point as my pointed as my DNS and it basically filters through everything that goes in and out. And if it comes from a an ad agency or a tracking uh, platform, then it just says, no, I'm not going to give you that information. And um, it's, it's produced, it works really, really well. Um, sometimes too well, um, especially when you uh, make a living building projects and every once in a while you actually need uh, some analytics to show up and it's like, nope, no analytics for you. Um, but of course you can disable it and, you know, you can temporarily disable it and stuff. And you can tell it to, Hey, I want you to let certain sites or certain servers or domains through. Um, that's, that's probably the biggest use of it, but I also run a lot of, uh, development servers for work using like Docker. Um, I will, if I'm giving a presentation, I don't want to have to have you know, I don't want to have to wipe my hard drive and set up this pristine environment. But what I can do is say, hey, let's load up a, you know, a Docker image that has all the things that I need all ready to go. So when I give that presentation, I'm up and running. I'm connecting to it as if it were that computer. And then when I'm done, I shut it all down and go about my business. Um, and then I also run a few other servers. Uh, we have a home bridge set up uh, that doesn't get much usage anymore, but you know, it's still there running. Um, and a few other home services that need a server to be constantly on, then all of that lives on that Mac mini. And it's just, it's my workhorse. In fact, I've, I have several raspberry Pis. I think I have four of them at this point that have all lost out to the Mac mini because it just handles it. Yeah. You know, it's called Pi hole because it was built originally for raspberry Pi but you're running it yeah. on a Mac mini. If somebody is, is listening to this and they're like, well, I have a, a Mac that's running 24 seven. Maybe I want to put a pie hole installation in at my home. How complicated is it? There's a couple of options you can take. You can, you can do the, again, I use the Docker route, which you got to be familiar with Docker to use Docker. Um, I like to say that it's really easy to set up and it's really hard to do anything else other than set up. Um, but uh, with with Pi-hole on Docker, you just install Docker. You go to the Pi-hole website, you download the Docker image of it, and you just tell it Docker run, and then it it's there. It's up and it's running, and it does everything for you. And then if you need to do some small configuration changes, they actually have really good documentation on how to do that. The other side of that is you could just run it as the system. Um, just open up a terminal, you execute the files, and they kind of walk you through the steps of getting it going. I think if you're going to go that route, you probably do want to use a dedicated system like a Pi Hole because it needs to be running, or not a Pi Hole, as a Raspberry Pi because it needs yeah. to be running all the time. And the the thing with Docker is Docker treats those images as if they are in their own environment. Whereas if you have 
a bunch of other things running at the same time, it could cause a couple of complications. Um, so I've only tried the two the two different options: one running on a Raspberry Pi, and that's that Pi's only job, and then the other having it run on my Mac Mini contained in a Docker image. All right. Well, I'll put links in the show notes for both Pi Hole and Docker, and if you're interested, you can check that out. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Pingdom. Go to pingdom.com slash RelayFM and start monitoring your website and performance availability today. Use offer code MPU to get 30% off. Pingdom from SolarWinds can really save your bacon. Today's internet users expect a fast web experience. No matter how targeted your marketing content or how sleek your website is, they'll bounce if a page is loading too slow. But with real user monitoring from Pingdom, you can discover how website performance affects your visitor's experience, so you can take action before your business is impacted, all for as low as $10 a month. Whether your visitors are dispersed around the world or across browsers, devices, and platforms, Pingdom helps you identify bottlenecks, troubleshoot performance, and make informed optimizations. Real user monitoring is an event-based solution, so it's built for scalability. This means you can monitor millions of page views, not just sample data, at an affordable price. Get live performance visibility today with real user monitoring from Pingdom. Go to pingdom.com slash RelayFM right now for a 30-day free trial with no credit card required. Then when you're ready to buy, use the code MPU at checkout to get an awesome 30% off your first invoice. Our thanks to Pingdom from SolarWinds for their support of the Mac Power users and all of RelayFM. All right, Jay, I'm not going to let you get away without sharing some of your favorite apps and services, one of my favorite segments of our guest interviews. So so let me know. Uh, I know one of them you want to talk about is Bunch. So let, let's start there. So Bunch is Bunch has changed how I do contextual computing on my Mac. Um, Bunch was created by Brett Terpstra, the, the Brett Terpstra. Um, uh, famous around the internets and it's designed very much like Dexet. Um, instead of having an interface where you work with different tools and documents and things, you have a single document where you just put text in and it has its own little name language. Uh, it isn't too hard to learn. I say it's, it's easy to learn. Um, pretty easy to master. It just takes time. Uh, and you start realizing all the crazy things you can do with it. Uh, but the, the simplest example of this is when I started this recording, I launched the podcasting, um, context in bunch and that did a bunch of things. No pun intended there. Yeah. Uh, it set do not disturb on my computer. It made sure that my audio input and output devices were set correctly. Uh, it made sure that Zoom was the only thing open and everything else was closed. And that's kind of a headache because I had to reopen my notes, but that's fine. Um, there's actually a menu that I could choose from. So it says like, hey, what kind of podcast are you doing? Are you doing an interview? Are you doing a solo you know, content. And based on that response, it furthermore triggered a bunch of keyboard maestro um, workflows to make sure that audio hijack was set properly and um, all the naming and stuff was set correctly. So it's it's really cool that 
Uh, it's not the only tool that I use, but it's, it makes it so easy to just get in, start working. And then if I need to make an adjustment, I don't have to try to figure out, okay, where in the, the weird cycle is thing or do things go? It's like, okay, Hey, I'm looking at, you know, 10 lines of text. Maybe it's line seven that instead of, you know, opening or closing Safari, I just say, Hey, don't do that anymore. And I just delete that line. And then Safari stays open. Yeah. I mean, it's a application to set up your computer for contextual work really. And because Brett is Brett, it's like really easy. I mean, I cannot understate how easy this is like to open an app, you type the name of the app. That's it. I mean, um, we did a whole show on this over at automators. It's automator 75. And, um, if you're interested in this, I'm going to put a link in the show show notes to go check it out. But, uh, I, I think it's one of my favorite projects that Brett has made because it's just so useful. And uh, I hope a lot of people check it out because this is a one of the best ways to do computer setups, which I think are just brilliant. You know, the, to sit down, you're getting back to our contextual computing conversation earlier, sitting down saying, okay, now I'm going to do sales work or now I'm going to do email or whatever it is that I'm going to do now you push a button and your computer makes it gives you the ideal app layout and the ideal setup to do that the most efficiently. I mean, that's the way it should be, right? Absolutely. And I mean, i I get paid when bunch works. Um, I actually have a bunch that for certain projects that I work on that are, you know, it's freelance work. And when I close out that bunch, when I say, Hey, I'm done working on this, it, updates my timing and stuff it sends a, a message to the my stakeholders and depending on what time of the month it is it opens up my billing platform to make sure that i i document that time and my time for the month so that i get paid on time so um i i think it's fantastic that it's it's as simple or as complex as you want it to be and the the trick is just getting started and and Brett's done a really good job of making that extremely easy yeah, the the learning curve is very easy. To, I mean, just uh, Jay's describing some advanced usages here, but just just the basic level set up your computer to do this project is not hard. And uh, I'd recommend everybody check it out. Go listen to Automator seventy five. Go to the website bunchapp.co. Just just give it a try. What else is uh, getting you excited these days on your computer? So I've. We mentioned at the beginning of the show, I know my way around a terminal. Unfortunately, when you're doing presentations all the time, it's kind of hard to do a lot of that in a terminal. It's not impossible, but it's definitely easier if you have kind of a modern text editor with, you know, some nice features around it. So I've been playing around with Nova and Nova is a code editor brought to the brought to you by Panic. Um, the same people that have made a bunch of amazing things, including uh, the play date, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's you know, got a lot of a lot of cool things happening over there. But I, I think that you know the conversation around having dedicated dedicated app, you know, makers for the Mac ecosystem. That's kind of a, a hot button topic these days. Um, I think the team at Panic shows a good example of if if you want to stay small, you don't necessarily have to. 
Um, but if you want to stay small and you want to make those decisions, you totally can. And there are some benefits to it. So Nova is a code editor that looks like it belongs in the Mac ecosystem. Um, and, and I think that's probably the biggest compliment to it is that it, it feels like it is exactly where it needs to belong, where uh, some of the other uh, code editors that are there, um, they, they look the same on every platform that you use, but that means they don't necessarily look like they belong on your system. Uh, Nova has done that. It's still a relatively new app, so I think it does lack in a lot of the features that um, Visual Studio Code or, or some of those other tools have. That said, Nova's been only around for you know less than a year, and I've, there's already a small community of of developers building extensions for it. So I, I think it's definitely going to be around for a while. I think it's going to become as modern, and um, again, it's just a beautiful app, and it, it it looks and runs really well. Yeah, I you know I with the all the stuff going on lately, I always thought of myself as someone who was a purist. I only wanted Mac apps. But with the um, emergence of Obsidian in my life, this Electron app, it has me questioning that and, you know, wondering. But part of it, I think, right now is just we're at this really weird space where, you know, Apple has announced Swift UI and they're trying to get that together, but it's not fully together yet. So then app developers are looking at that. And then, you know, you've got Electron, you've got Catalyst, you've got all these different ways to get apps on the Mac now. And, but there isn't really a clear, solid solution right now. You know, I, I don't think you really want to use AppKit, which is the historic version, because that I think clearly is going out, out the window at some point, but like, how much time do you want to spend? I, I mean, you work on that, you know, in that space and I don't think, I'm not asking you for all the answers, but I, I do think that we're just at a weird place right now with this stuff. So for me, it's all about the idea of one: can you make the thing that you want to make? Like, yeah. My my role is, as an advocate is often to show people, you know, things that they can make using you know different software, different tools. Um, but often that means I'm making things myself, and um, I I would say luckily for me, most of my the stuff that I make tends to go on the web, uh, so I don't have. I don't have to to deal with this argument too much. But that said, I mean, it it's a great time for developers because there are so many options. Uh, one of my favorites is there's a, a platform called Rumps, which is basically a way for you to write Python and present the output in your menu bar, which I know uh, a friend of the show, Jason Snell, is, is you know, doing a lot of work in that space and is known for some of the stuff that he's been able to do with menu bar apps. Um, but again, you know, five years ago, that wouldn't have been an option. You you wouldn't be able to write, you know, Python code and then put it up there. And now it exists and it's there. And is it, you know, perfect? But no. But is Swift UI perfect? Also no. Is Catalyst perfect? Also no. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's great that there are so many paths that can be taken I think it's up to the, you know, the makers of the operating systems to, one, give everyone a fair shot. I, I think that's that's kind of the hard part there is if if you want people to develop for your platform, just again, that, that hunter mentality, have the system get out of the way so that you can make the best possible application, regardless of what platform that you're using. 
Um, I, but that said, I mean, just like how OmniFocus is a very different app from things, but they use, you know, some comparable technologies and then they're very different from something like Todoist, you know, they're all accomplishing a goal, but at the same time, the way that they're going about it is completely different. And I think the whole, uh, I guess the battles between should they be native apps or should they be apps that are made with these other technologies? I think at the end of the day, it depends on what the, the company's plans are and what what's kind of their mindset. I don't think Nova is going to put out an Electron app, at least. I, I don't think so at the moment. But no, that not panic. No, Companies yeah. change. I, I can't believe panic would ever do that. But, you know, who knows? But either way, it is an interesting time. And I'm really curious to see how it all shakes out. I suspect that um, with time, Swift UI is going to become much more stable. And that's going to give developers an easy solution. But I don't know. We'll find out. Either way, Jay, it was so nice having you on the show today. Um, can you tell us where people can find you if they want to follow up with your podcast or some of the other things you're working on? So I, I do have a website, kjymiller.com. I I write. I, I'm not going to say I write regularly or do anything on a, any type of regular basis, but uh, the one thing that is regular is the podcast Conduit. It's the show for people hoping to uh, just celebrate the fact that they got something done and that they're being productive. Or if they're not, maybe to get some encouragement about how they can do it. Uh, we don't tend to, we try not to teach, but you know, at the same time, it's more of a celebration than a, than a school lesson. But you can find that over at relay.fm slash conduit uh, with myself and the wonderful Kathy Campbell. Um, and of course on Twitter, uh, that's about it for me at uh, Twitter at K J A Y Miller. And if you're into the development stuff in Python or, you know, any language really just message me. And uh, I always love to have those conversations and figure out how I can help people in whatever ways I can. Well, Jay, thank you so much for coming on and sharing all your wisdom with us today. Um, and also, especially, thanks for sharing all the details on craft. I'm so happy we could have somebody on the show that's a craft power user. Um, we are the uh, Mac Power Users Podcast. You can find us at relay.fm slash MPU. Thank you to our sponsors. So that Today, that was 1Password, Smile, Squarespace, and Pingdom. On more power users today, Jay and I are going to be talking about his analog journal. We're going to go the opposite of technology, so I'm looking forward to doing that. Uh, for you uh, more power user subscribers thank you for your subscription and stay tuned for that for the rest of you folks see you next week